Welcome to Turning Season Podcast, your regular dose of active hope, bringing you deep conversations about how and why people are participating in the great turning, the adventure story of our time as we transition into a life-honoring, life-sustaining society. This show is for every one of you who's awake to our multiple crises, feels your love for life on earth, and is finding your way to take part in cultivating ways of life we can believe in, making a life-honoring present even in the face of an uncertain future. I'm your host, Leilani Navar. I facilitate the work that reconnects. I practice acupuncture and dream work. I believe in the power of conversation, and I get a lot of goodness from connecting with people around the world who are giving their hearts and minds and hands to the great turning, like Radhika Bhagat, my guest for this episode. Radhika is the founder and chairman of Sacred Earth Trust in India and a wildlife conservationist with over 15 years of experience working with leading conservation groups in India. We had the kind of conversation I love most, and we get into the whole range of topics, touching on Radhika's experience working for a leading conservation NGO in India, and why she changed her focus to the revival of spiritual connection with the earth, why this two-pronged approach, speaking to both science and spirituality, is essential. We talk about what sacred groves are, and how Sacred Earth Trust has approached learning about them, why it's so important to protect both these groves and the belief systems that have kept them alive until now. Radhika shares how she has seen culture change in India since her own teenage years, and what she thinks might help revive a perspective that all life is sacred in a modern context. And we talk about stories. We talk about change on the mythic level of human society's sense of itself. Stories from indigenous protectors of sacred groves in India, and Radhika's reflections on the three stories of our time. The stories Joanna Macy named as business as usual, the great unraveling, and the great turning. We talk about redefining development to include a more comprehensive experience of life than just financial and material, and bodhicitta, the awakening mind, the mind of compassion and devotion to the welfare of all, which we also often talk about within the work that reconnects because of Joanna Macy's Buddhist background. As I've mentioned before on the podcast, I have mixed feelings about social media, but every so often something so good happens through Instagram that I'm reminded why I stick around, and connecting with Radhika has been one of those things. A little more from her bio before we jump into the conversation. Radhika has handled projects for protection of wildlife and habitats across India and neighboring countries and was awarded the Conservation Achievement Award by the Wildlife Trust of India in 2013. She also functioned as the liaison between the Wildlife Trust and its U.S.-based international partner, International Fund for Animal Welfare in South Asia, for field projects in the region, which involved handling international relations with government ministries and local and international advocacy. She holds a master's degree in wildlife sciences and has articles published in leading newspapers and journals. She is formally trained in yogic sciences, and her key area of interest is spiritual ecology. 
She believes all answers lie in our inherent wildness. Radhika, thank you so much for joining me today. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much. It's it's really nice to be here with you today. I'd love to ask you first how you would finish these open sentences from the work that reconnects. So starting as we like to do with gratitude, you can finish this sentence however you'd like. Some things I love about being alive in earth are. Right. So I think being alive is a miracle. And being embodied in this human form, which gives me the ability to experience life and also this great cosmos, uh, I think it's pretty amazing. Um, and to be honest, there's so many days when I'm just in awe of our reality. You know, just our reality itself is so amazing that, you know, we live on this planet, which is full of this, you know, amazing biodiversity and we have birth songs and galaxies. And, and I think we do not realize, but this uh, ability to just be in this space is a gift. And uh, coming in awareness of this is medicine for me, or has been medicine for me. Uh, but I think by far the most wonderful part has been for me was when I learned to be in the present moment. And that is also when I learned to connect deeper with the earth. Before that, of course, I loved nature. And, you know, I was working for nature for so many years, but it wasn't until I think two, two or three years ago that I was able to connect at a much deeper level with Mother Earth and to be healed by her, to feel her unconditional love. Um, and I think that connection is what I love most about being alive now. Uh, the Earth is literally like this great goddess and the body of whom you know, we live. And in India, we even worship her as a goddess. Like, uh, But really, all across the world, people worship her as a goddess. And... Uh, yeah, just to be able to commune with nature, with the sun, the moon, animals, plants, the elements. And I think when it is time for me to leave the planet, I think this is what I will miss the most. So, yeah. Mm, that was so beautiful. Thank you for that. Ah. And stepping into the next phase of the spiral, how would you finish this sentence? When I look around at what's happening in the world, what breaks my heart is. Yeah, that is a really uh, difficult one to answer purely because, um, you know, being an empath, um, like so many of us who are, who are doing this work uh, for protecting, fighting for nature, I think it is all the suffering, uh, which is really hard sometimes just the enormity of all the pain that we're inflicting on ourselves and all the sentient life forms, each other. In any given moment, um, it's, it's just a lot to sometimes uh, be able to live with. And I see how disconnected people are from their personal power and their inner wisdom, even just as I was and I'm slowly coming into you know, my own um, personal power. And the feminine qualities which are there in both genders of, you know, intuition, empathy, cooperation. Uh, we are so disconnected from it. And I think that also is 
does cause me a lot of suffering to just think about that. And I always think about this uh, quote by Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, where he said that uh, someone said walking on water is a miracle, but to me, walking peacefully on earth is a miracle. Because I think uh, it's easy to close our hearts to this pain because we think pain is wrong or pain is bad. But I think pain is a great teacher. But like any good teacher, it can only receive. Uh, we can only receive a lesson uh, when we sit with the teacher and we ask ourselves, what is this pain trying to teach me? And uh, what I found was that when we are uncomfortable with what is the status quo, uh, that is what is asking us to question that what must we be to create change and what do we need to embody? Uh, what is our purpose? So I think even... This pain gives us our power, our inspiration, our purpose. And there is no need then to be scared of the darkness. And, um, and I know that for so many of us who are called to do this work, we are learning to alchemize this pain into fuel for action. And I think that is where the magic lies. And uh, I think the basic line is that what we cannot accept we must then take action to change. So, so yes, I think I diverted a little bit from there, but yeah, going from where, what causes me suffering, I think it also makes me uh, strong somewhere else. Yes, yes, I hear you. I'm with you. Uh, you. You sort of naturally moved into the third phase. I didn't name all the phases of the spiral, but in these experiential deep ecology gatherings or work that reconnects workshops we start with gratitude and then honoring our pain just as you're saying our pain is not to be ignored or shut away or try to make it smaller but to be honored and to listen and then we can move into the third phase which we call seeing with new eyes or perceiving in new and ancient ways and I'm hearing you talk about this sense of purpose and determination to change what we can't accept. And I love hearing that in combination with this awe and uh, this wonder and gratitude at the miracle of being alive and this bigger view of what is happening here is so amazing. And there are things happening that bring us pain and we can't accept them. And, and so we find our way to take action. So, yeah, thank you for, for all you just shared there. And I'd like to open up the conversation more into what are these things that have felt unacceptable to you and what kinds of work you've been doing on behalf of nature, on behalf of wildlife. And we, we maybe could bring in to this story how you mentioned that you're coming into more of your personal power and also connecting with these more feminine qualities, connecting more deeply with Mother Earth, which I think is a kind of a kind of seeing with new eyes. So I'd love to hear about your story. I really like um, how you put that thing with new eyes because it literally feels like that. 
I feel like my perception of the world has changed so much over the past few years. Um, and I think it had a lot to do with, you know, what personally I went through, you know, the challenges, but also what I saw out there during my time working in the field of conservation. So I really, just like so many of us in this field, I think right from my childhood, um, I knew that I wanted to work for nature. I wanted to work to protect uh, wildlife and forests. And um, so I started my journey working with uh, one of the leading uh, NGOs in India. And I worked there for like 12 uh, years. But over the course of this time, while we were doing a lot of good work and very important work, what I realized was that somehow we are only touching the symptoms, whether it's poaching, whether it's uh, destruction of forests or, um, you know, unsustainable development. We are only touching the symptoms. We are not even looking at what the core issues are. And I realized like, okay, I've given over 10 years of my life to this. And if I give another 30 uh, years of my life, I, the, the overall trend is on, on a decline. You know, we are seeing the destruction of nature is so rapid and so at such a large scale that I, I felt like my efforts were too small and probably insignificant when, it, when I am alone. And that's what brought me on this path of sacred ecology because I felt like the root cause is our disconnection from nature. And the more people who start to think like you and I and so many of us in the conservation field think, the stronger we are and the stronger our impact would be. And uh, so it's, it, it, it just started to take root in, uh, you know, in my mind. And I wasn't very sure because I was surrounded by people who were very scientific minded. There was no space for, or, and I didn't have like a community where I would share these thoughts and they would be reciprocated. But over time, I started to, you know, get in touch with people, listen to talks online of people with similar mindsets and I was like wow I'm not alone and I really feel this is the way ahead for our planet and uh, that's where uh, I took time I took the courage like I brought in the courage to leave my job and uh, started to integrate my thoughts around what I really wanted to do on this path of sacred ecology and what was most important and uh, I set up my trust called the sacred earth trust where our main focus is to revive our spiritual connection with nature, which once was there across the world, across cultures in India and South America and Africa, Australia, Europe, everywhere. The basis, you know, of uh, religions or the origins that we see are all based and rooted in nature worship or earth worship. So, so that's how it all began. And uh, now, of course, we're also working on a lot of different projects interrelated with raising human consciousness and protecting sacred uh, sites and uh, restoration of habitats. So, yes. Yeah, this is really touching me, this, this feeling that in conservation work, and I think in a lot of all kinds of environmental actions, and it even feels a little strange now for me to use the word environmental because it's strangely separate um, from humans and strange sort of feels inanimate. But 
but a lot of this activism, it does feel like it's only on the surface. And like you said, the destruction has only accelerated. It's it's only gotten more and worse and faster. Yes, we have protected some places, but how do we get to the root of this, I think is such a deep and essential question. So I, I'd love to just hear more about where this has taken you, maybe on the ground first. Would you share more about these sacred sites and what are the sacred groves and how are you working to protect them? Yes, sure. So sacred groves are essentially patches of forest, which are protected by local communities. Uh, you know, the basis of this is that they have a belief of, uh, they have a spiritual connection with the land, whether it's uh, due to a nature deity that they believe inhabits that landscape, that forest, or their sacred trees uh, that are found there. Uh, but the uniform thread is that it is the communities that are protecting this due to their uh, religious beliefs or spiritual beliefs related to that forest. And India has about uh, more than 100,000 to up to 150,000 sacred groves, it's estimated. But wow. uh, yes, not even 10% uh, of them have been studied or documented. Uh, studied would be even lesser. And these groves are fast disappearing and they're amazing models of conservation and, you know, these last remaining hubs of this belief system. And I felt like it was so important to protect this because as we are losing these sacred groves, um, and one of the main reasons for you know, the fast uh, deterioration of these groves and disappearance even is because of the breakdown in the belief system. So it's really a race against time to protect not only the green landscapes, but also this belief system. So we started with working in you know, the northeast of India and in the state of Meghalaya, uh, where a lot of uh, you know, the communities that live there have their bases in animistic ways of um, connecting with nature. You know, their belief systems are rooted in animism. We've also done studies in uh, northern India and Uttarakhand and in the Braj landscape uh, in uh, Uttar Pradesh and Rajasthan, which is actually connected with stories of uh, Hindu deities, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Lord Krishna and Goddess Radha, but they are, uh, you know, they have a huge, we have like majority of India follows Hinduism and uh, you would be surprised, one would think that these forests, these sacred groves, which have stories where this is where the God and the Goddess first met, or this is where, uh, you know, th this is the forest that the Goddess planted with her own hand. But these have been cut down as well. And there are very few remaining uh, patches of these forests left, in, even in that landscape. So seeing the urgency, uh, we've started to work on, you know, first understanding uh, what is the biodiversity, uh, what is the tree composition, what is the cultural, the community perception around these groves, and uh, then what is the best model for protecting these for the times to come, whether it is taking legal protection using supports from the government or perhaps a community-based uh, community approach is, you know, fit. there's no one size fits all. So, so yes, that's the direction that we're uh, moving in. But I really feel like we need to move into a model which is 
uh, there is less time. We do not have time in hand to work independently. So I think partnerships is what I see in the future for us to work with multiple partners across India who do the same work based on you know certain best practices. So that that's where we are with respect to sacred growth conservation. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree and feel that momentum in a lot of places that partnerships and working together and and connecting are many different pieces in the movement, like stars in a constellation is is really what's happening more and more now. So that's so heartening and exciting to hear that you're doing that in this way. And I am fascinated and and I feel this like quickening in me, this curiosity, this draw to what you're saying about the sacredness of these places and the stories that they hold and the belief systems that you're also thinking about protecting the belief systems. And I wonder if we could get a little bit philosophical here for a couple minutes. And I, I'm thinking about my own experience of coming to a sense of the sacred in the web of life. Not only the sacredness of it, but even first feeling the aliveness of everything. And that's been that's been a process for me. I feel like my consciousness had to sort of recover from a lot of messages that the world is like a machine and humans are the most important. And, you know, all these sort of cultural messages that at least here I definitely grew up with. And I don't know how much my experience is similar to yours or to the experience of people growing up in India, but I'd like to hear about that. Like, what do you think is the reason that even these belief systems are dying and what's it like to try to restore and protect this way of viewing nature? Right. So... Let's think about, I mean, I'll go back to my own childhood and how that formed my uh, worldview or my views around nature. So I think in, I was blessed that in my family, um, my mother especially, I think she really instilled um, compassion and empathy, even for like the smallest of insects to uh, trees and nature around. She, uh, in, in, in Indian culture, if you see the inherent sacredness is talked about, uh, maybe not so much anymore, but when I was younger, it, it was very much a part of our daily lives, you know, where uh, even when we made meals, a part of the meals would be kept aside. Some would be, you know, fed to the birds, some would be left for the ants, and um, that was just a way of life, you know, that interconnectedness was recognized and sharing uh, of resources with everything because purely we realize that there is a sacred undercurrent to everything. But I've also noticed that over time, uh, we aren't talking about this anymore. And I think a lot of it is to do with how the world has changed, you know, um, with the internet. And, you know, India was a, kind of an insulated place when I was a teenager and uh, once the internet came in and it opened us up to the whole world and it has 
grows and it bonds. And I think it's the same thing that's happening with sacred groves as well. Like with the communities there, uh, when we interacted with them, what we found was that the younger generation is not interested uh, in in what their mythology is related to their sacred forest. And even the adults, the older generation, aren't passing on this wisdom or the knowledge to the next generation. So perhaps the pathways of the transmission of this knowledge, this wisdom has been broken. So one of the ways that uh, we are exploring now is how to rebuild these pathways uh, because they, they have to be in the modern context. Um, you know, whether it is through revival of festivals that once were associated with these groves, whether to revive old stories or folklore, which was associated, old songs. So we are exploring different ways. Um, also to, you know, bring the community members in contact with this landscape because a huge part of it is people losing that connection even with the landscape, which is so important. And um, so ways of bringing people back in connection, even physically, emotionally, um, that is part of that process of rebuilding this. But also, this is uncharted territory, really, you know. So we're yeah. also experimenting with this approach and learning as we go. Mm -hmm. Um so, so yes, but of course, there are examples from around the world that we can lean on, but uh, and the old wisdom there to you know kind of act as a guiding star. Um, but I think we have to walk with this uncertainty of not knowing what's ahead, but we just keep walking ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes, yeah. That sounds very wise to me. <laughs> finding our way as we go it is so it's completely unprecedented the whole the whole mix of what's going on um i it stood out to me when you said that people are losing their physical connection with these places is that because people are living more in urban environments or what it, what do you think is happening where because i guess what i'm thinking about is worldview and philosophy and scientific thinking all can play a role and what younger people are being exposed to from sort of modern globalized culture that's showing up on the internet. But when we are intimately experiencing what it's like to be in an old forest, I feel there's something in us that responds naturally, innately to that. So do you think that part of this is just people having less time in these wild places? Yeah, you're so right there that just being in the presence of say, an old growth forest is so powerful that it cannot but have an effect on that person's mind and heart. But um, what we found is happening here is that uh, one is that the people's dependence on these forests uh, uh, is not as much in in some areas uh, where earlier people would say go into the forest for collecting firewood or medicinal plants. Um, you would find that now they're no more dependent on that because they have modern ways of you know cooking. 
And even medicine, if you look at, they have access to modern medicine. These are examples. But purely, wherever we find that the dependence, uh, which was very much sustainable, um, that the community had with these forests has reduced, so has their spiritual connection with the place also reduced. So that is kind of a paradox. But I think there is a middle ground to that, which because that is how it had been carrying on for all these years. Uh, also, there is in a lot of places, especially like uh, in Uttarakhand, which is in North India, like part of the Himalayan range. There is a lot of migration uh, of people from those areas to, uh, you know, the main cities, to larger metro cities, metropolitan cities, and also an influx of outsiders coming in. And there's the, you know, mixing of cultures. And so people slowly lose faith in the taboos. The stories are kind of getting lost somewhere. And the fear, a lot of it, there's, there are basically two drivers uh, to protecting these sacred groves. One is fear-based because they believe that uh, based on certain taboos, like if you cut a tree here, you will be cursed or so-and-so thing you know, bad luck will come on to your family and to you. But um, they are slowly losing these fears as uh, you know, they allow more tourism to happen in those areas or um, or they just don't follow those taboos anymore and they realize like, okay, perhaps this isn't really, this folklore isn't really true. Um, and it's it's a mix of a lot of things which are actually happening together. It's also just the anthropogenic pressures uh, in other areas or there's change in land use so which also disconnects people from the landscape uh, so yeah it, it's a it's a mix of things which is happening really i see thank you for explaining more of that i'm i'm finding my mind going toward the science now because i know you have a background in wildlife science and Curious how that's coming into this telling of new stories, as you said, bringing it into a modern context, because as you were saying that about, you know, old folklore, if you cut this tree down, you'll be cursed or your family will be cursed. And people think that isn't true, but it is true. It is so clearly true when we look at the human family and the science of what's happening right now. And even with all the things that we cannot say for certain within ecological science, if we keep destroying everywhere that the that plant life grows, that other than human life grows, we simply cannot survive. We're we're totally interdependent. We we are co-woven together here. And so when we cut those trees down. I don't know if the idea is that the curse is a punishment or or what, but it, it seems literally true to me that we bring harm upon ourselves and our families and our broader families, but maybe it's not so immediate like like some of these um, stories maybe made it seem in the past, like that you yourself and your parents will suffer a curse. But when we... I also think that the scientific, more broad, holistic scientific view can give us a sense of sacredness, at least in the sense that we want to 
honor and respect and treat with care the whole miraculous web of life that is so intricate and and interconnected. And so are you finding a role for speaking about this in a scientific way that helps sort of, I don't know, come at it from another angle, I guess, that in a way tells similar stories to the old ones? Yes, uh, very much so. So, you know, our vision for it was always that this has to be a two-pronged approach. Uh, we do not just approach it from one one side. We've seen that only using science alone may not be effective and only using the spirituality angle or people's connection to nature alone also may not work. It may work in certain situations, either of them, but when they come together, I think that is what completes the picture. You know, when we talk about the ecosystem services that uh, these landscapes are providing um, how you know the watershed system is interconnected with these landscapes. Uh, we are doing uh, you know phytosociological studies there. We're looking at the bird diversity, the uh, the butterflies, the reptiles, and um, and also people observe. You know these people who've lived so intimately with these landscapes over the years also look at patterns of how earlier when uh, you know there were more uh, antelopes or deer coming here there was also a more diversity of maybe the shrub species so they have uh, certain of these understandings in them but they really haven't I, I think just how life kind of tends to pull us out from you know our uh, piece of being connected with ourselves so does it do that with landscapes people uh, do not uh, really give that much thought to these areas anymore as they once did so even though the realization is there I think there is a need to repackage it now based on our findings which are scientific and also these tools that uh, you know we develop as we learn more and more uh, which are based in their culture and their tradition. I think both of them coming together are a very powerful way of approaching this. And yes, we really hope that um, we're going to see results. This is slow work because it takes time to change mindsets and to revive old ways. But uh, we are very positive that we should have success in at least a lot of the areas that we're working in, if not all. That's amazing. I, that that makes so much sense. I really feel the the truth of that in my own consciousness. The way that that co mingling of the of scientific information and sacred stories and a, an innate sense of sacredness and connection that they are in a synergy within my own mind and heart. So, I recently heard. I, I'll look for where this idea comes from so I can put it in the show notes, but I recently heard Joe Brewer of Earth Regenerators talking about four levels of change. And I believe that the sort of base level is the mythic level, like the stories that we believe, our worldview essentially of what it is to be here alive as humans in this planet. And then the next more sort of 
layer up more superficially, I think, was the discourse, the kind of conversations, and then up to policies and institutions. And then at the top is our day-to-day actions. And we need change on all of these levels, but the the base one, that mythic level, is the slowest to change. And so when we do change there, it's also the longest lasting. So that's coming to mind as you talk about this, really this work to shift the the foundational story that we feel we're living in, or stories, maybe. And this this leads me to another question I wanted to ask you which is, are there any more stories that you would like to tell? Old stories, you mentioned, you know, the grove where Radha and Krishna first met. And yeah, just just to make space here for all of the listeners, for you to talk to us about any stories that you would love to tell and help keep alive. Great. Uh, I love that example that you just, I mean, the uh, article you mentioned uh, with the four layers, I would really love to read more on that. It seems really interesting. So, okay, I'll share one case study that really um, kind of, you know, took seed in my heart. Uh, So as we do a lot of literature reviews and we go across stories from different parts of India, you know, about people's connection to these sacred groves. So in East India, uh, there are a lot, lot of sacred groves. East uh, Central India, East Central India. And they believe that uh, these groves house a deity called Sarna Mata, basically Sarna Mother, Mother Sarna. Okay, and she's basically an embodiment of uh, nature, a personification of nature. So according to local beliefs, Sarna Mata has grown very unhappy uh, with the deterioration she has witnessed in these groves over the past decade. And now she expresses herself in the mind of the local indigenous women in the form of possession trances. I don't know if you've ever uh, seen one of, you know, like a possession trance ever where a person is totally overcome with the spirit of a certain deity or a god or a goddess. So these indigenous women are going into these possession trances and that has given rise to this movement of protection and restoration and recreation of uh, these sacred groves. So I thought like this was so fascinating because uh, I felt like the earth is coming into the consciousness of these women. She's speaking to these women uh, and so much like, you know, any of us who are working, who are doing this work to, you know, serve nature. It's, it's very similar to how she comes into our consciousness as well to give us a sense of purpose and uh, a direction. So I think this was something that really stood out from so many of the other fascinating stories about sacred growth in India. But yeah, this is, I think, currently my favorite. Thank you. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, just, just even imagining it is definitely opening up a window in my mind here. So thank you. And still speaking of stories, I had mentioned to you that I might ask you about the three stories of our time. I got so interested in talking to you about 
everything else we've been talking about, but I still want to circle back to this before we close because I'm really interested to hear your reflections on this idea. Joanna Macy named three stories of our time. There are three worldviews, too, of what's going on right now. What is the story that's playing out? And one of those stories is business as usual, and that is the dominant modern industrial culture that is all about growth and getting ahead and people making more money and having more. And, you know, that plot line continues to play out. And then there's a second story, The Great Unraveling. And this is the one that many of us are quite aware of and find heartbreaking, the story of of everything falling apart, of loss of species and social structures breaking down and so much suffering and and really falling apart of what's kept the web of life sustained. And then the third story that we could view ourselves as being a part of right now is the great turning. And this is a shift toward a life-sustaining human society, a shift that has dimensions of protecting places and people and sentient beings, plant life, there's the protection actions, and then there's the nurturing and beginning new life-sustaining systems, the real practical ways that we live in a life-sustaining way. And then there's these shifts in consciousness like we've been talking about. So The Great Turning is a is an adventure story, and it has all those pieces to it. But what I'd like to ask you is, is of those three stories, business as usual, The Great Unraveling, and the great turning, how you relate to that idea and where you find yourself living in one or more of those stories. Okay, so I have so much to say on each of these stories, but I think I'm going to condense my thoughts a bit. But in terms of, you know, the status quo, like business as usual, I think our stories uh, like, you know, every civilization, every society needs a story to live by, right? So with respect to business as usual, I think our stories have been driven since forever by the quest for human happiness and uh, a larger meaning, you know, to life. But for a very long time, we have been told a story that the key to happiness lies outside of us. And this is the biggest lie told to humanity that a happiness is in these materialistic possessions, financial status, and uh, physical appearance. And we are so conditioned by these, uh, you know, economic education systems, the power structures, and the media. And what we are being told is that what really matters is getting ahead and competing for profit and power by growing the economy at any cost. And I think it's time that we redefine the term development to encompass a wider, comprehensive experience of life. And these structures have been established alongside the breakdown of our spiritual connection with nature, actually, and the breakdown of these animistic belief systems. And now nature is looked at as a dead and mechanistic resource to be exploited. So I feel like the basis. Uh, on which the story of the current structures benefit very very few people 
and it keeps majority of the human population in a state of separation of slavery to the system and never really realizing their true potential or their purpose and so obviously the status quo is not working for us and in terms of the great unraveling which is happening currently uh along with you know the great turning is that there are more and more people waking up to the failure of these systems there is more awareness now in society for a need of a radically new uh, relationship with the world both with the environment and its inhabitants and that will also alter the core of the earlier relationship by restructuring our morals and ethics that we base our actions on so i think our human evolution is linked closely with that of our planet and what we do to our planet we do to ourselves and our suffering and the earth suffering is interconnected so there is actually this very beautiful few lines by terence mckenna which i'd like to quote here that what we are facing currently is very clearly a crisis of two things of consciousness and conditioning we have the technology we have the engineering skills to save our planet to cure disease feed the hungry and end war but we lack the intellectual vision and the ability to change our minds so we must decondition ourselves and it's not easy but having said that as we're in the midst of the great turning uh towards what we envision to be an ecological civilization that is also socially just and spiritually fulfilling it cannot be led or imposed by the same institutions that have brought us to this brink of breakdown in social structures breakdown in our spiritual relation to ourselves and of of nature the leadership must come from us from the people and uh, i think most important is that we need to prepare for this time we need to collaborate we need to participate in this wave of renewal and change and perhaps the greatest change that we need to see during this great turning is how we run the economy we must perhaps learn from mother earth herself uh, create a new system based on the laws of nature uh, which are not to damage the source of goods that create your profit that is intelligence and to uh, not destroy the source and also to you know keep a priority that is to make sure that we all have what we need and we create a field of abundance really that cares for everyone and also for the well-being of the generations to come and uh, within buddhism there is this intention uh, you know known as bodhicitta uh, bodhicitta moves our focus from personal well-being to collective well-being and i think i think that's very important for us as we move forward in the great turning ah wow beautifully and wisely and clearly said i'm i'm so glad that i asked for your thoughts on the three stories thank you for all of that and thank you for ending on bodhicitta for all of us i think um that that is one i think one beautiful guiding star is to connect with the bodhicitta within all of us and free that <laughs> to to motivate us yeah free the bodhicitta <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Thank you so much, Radhika. This has been really a pleasure. And I'm so grateful to connect with you, to hear more, and to know that you are out there doing what you're doing. And I'm with you in this vision that more and more collaboration is what's going to turn us. So I look forward to discovering as we walk this unprecedented pathway how we can keep supporting each other. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. It's been wonderful being here and to talk to you about all these ways in which we have to move forward, integrating and coming together. And I see you as somebody who embodies the same ideals and principles. So I really look forward to hearing from you too <laughs> and picking your mind on all these uh, because I'm sure you have such a deep wisdom based on your journey and your path. So yes, very soon, I think I'm going to have you on the other side. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. And and before we fully close, if people want to learn more about the Sacred Earth Trust and connect with you, what are good yes. ways to find you and reach you? I think the best way would be to reach out to us on our Instagram page. Uh, they can just uh, type in Sacred Earth Trust, the handle. And uh, we also have a website, sacredearthtrust.in. So either of those are, are good. Yes. Okay, great. I will link to both of those in the show notes for this episode. And we will be in touch again soon. Thank you again. Thank you. Really looking forward to that. And thank you so much for listening. If you know anyone else who would appreciate this conversation, please send them the link. You can share the episode directly from whatever app you're listening through, or send them to turningseason.com slash episode 32. On that show notes page, turningseason.com slash episode 32, you'll also find links to connect with Radhika and Sacred Earth Trust, and a link where you can read more about the four layers of causality and change that I mentioned hearing Joe Brewer talk about, which it turns out is called causal layered analysis. I haven't learned much more about it yet, but I'll add the link to the show notes for anyone who's feeling inspired to learn more. From that page, you can also subscribe to email notifications about new episodes, and you'll receive my new moon newsletter with a roundup of news of the great turning and other things that lit me up that month. I'll be back with another podcast episode on the full moon in May. Until then, thank you again for listening and for all the ways you play your part.